0: Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, please do consider supporting the bookshop by making a purchase from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com. There, you'll be able to find the titles discussed on today's episode, themed book boxes, our popular Year of Reading subscription, as well as gifts and merchandise, including our brand new Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt. All books come inked with our famous bookshop stamp and can be shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You might also consider joining Friends of Shakespeare and Company, a membership programme we created to support the bookshop's activities during a difficult 2021. The first instalment is now available for members and features exclusive contributions from Natalie Portman, Deborah Levy, Kartika Nair and George Saunders. Visit friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com to find out more. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined on the podcast by Rachel Kushner and Rob Doyle. Rachel Kushner's first essay collection, The Hard Crowd, covers 20 years of writing for magazines and journals. Fans of Kushner's trio of stunning novels will recognise some of the themes motorcycles, art, prison, revolutionary politics, as well as gaining insight into the artists such as Marguerite Duras, Clarice Lispector, and Jeff Koons, whose impact can be felt in her fiction, both as inspiration and foil. Whether she's riding in the illegal Carbo 1000 motorcycle race, visiting a Palestinian refugee camp in the heart of Jerusalem, or recalling her youthful entanglements with San Francisco's various art scenes, Kushner's essays are always a bracing, illuminating and crucially surprising read. Her insight never falters and her hand never trembles. If Rob Doyle's hand is trembling, you might wonder if it's because he's on the cusp of a particularly nasty come down. At least you might if you have gone and conflated Rob, your narrator in Doyle's second novel Threshold, with the author himself. Something which may or may not be a mistake and which we'll get into in a moment. In a way, with Threshold, Rob Doyle performs a genuine public service, plumbing the depths not only of the psychedelic experience, but also of emotional and artistic self-doubt so that you, dear reader, don't have to. The result is a novel that manages to be both scandalously funny and genuinely thought-provoking, the kind of book that can take the act of urinating into the mouth of a fellow Berlin clubgoer and turn it into a moment of genuine philosophical introspection. Rachel Kushner, Rob Doyle, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Um before we kick off um where do we find you today um both in your in your rooms in your houses and uh in in, in the wider cities uh Rachel have
2: you first oh yeah sure um i'm in my home office um mm-hmm. in los angeles i live in angelino heights which is next to echo park lake and uh walking distance from downtown los angeles Okay.
0: And what's the status at the moment? Are you guys locked down? Are you able to move around pretty freely?
2: We are not locked down. Everything in California uh, is opening up. So um, very different situation than in France. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it starts to, you can kind of glimpse uh, a future here that's radically different than what we've seen over the last year. Los Angeles was a kind of global epicenter, epicenter mm-hmm. excuse me, of the pandemic and There were periods of time when you just heard ambulances nonstop and, um, you know, um, the impact was felt by everyone in the sense of knowing people um, who got very sick or died from the COVID virus. But Mm -hmm. um, at this point, I think almost half the population here is vaccinated and um, things are looking up.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I felt myself kind of breathe kind of a bit easier when you said that like to to know that even if it's not quite happening here yet to know that it's happening somewhere is kind of right uh yeah I mean reassuring. there's other
2: felt devastations here just economically the way sure. that it has um pushed people who were already struggling to survive into mm. the margins it's a city that is completely um trashed and brutalized by what's happened over the last year and Um, You know, there are unhoused people everywhere. There's on our street on Sunset Boulevard, which I live right off of. Like the city is very beat up and everywhere you Mm -hmm. go, it basically looks like um, what you would imagine had you never been to Rio, parts of Rio might look like. Mm -hmm. That's what LA looks like now. But then there's also a lot of wealthy people in glamour here. It's a bizarre place.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rob, how about you? Where do we find you?
1: Uh, Far less glamorously in Rustler (laughs) Harbour, County Wexford, on the uh, southeast coast of Ireland. Um, It's just a a tiny port town where I've been um, riding out the pandemic and the lockdown. I was here when it first started, you know, this time last year or before, and um, moved back to Berlin, where I've been kind of living for the last few years. In the middle of it, you know, when it seemed like the summertime, when it's when there was that window of opportunity where it seemed like maybe we were all kind of overreacting and, and this thing was going to burn itself out quicker than expected. Uh, mm-hmm. And then obviously that didn't happen. And so uh, I came back here in late January of this year. And uh, I mean, it's very, it's very easy to be socially distanced down here. Uh, It's secluded and um, Uh so it's pretty, Ireland has had somewhere in between like it, Ireland has had officially the longest and most severe lockdown in the world. Um, It's, we've had, I think we've had what we call here level five lockdown, the most severe kind of lockdown for the last something like 200 days with the exception of five days before Christmas where, you Mm -hmm. know, to kind of let the people out somehow they they gave us a few days off but uh it's pretty dreary but we did the, the, the good side of it is we haven't had the kind of mass death um factor you know pe- obviously people have died from covid and yeah, yeah. so on but it just it, you know we have managed to more or less keep the numbers at least at an even um keel and you know ICU units haven't been overrun and so yeah, on yeah. so we all complain about it in the lockdown and the kind of seemingly endlessness of it but uh it, by and large you could say it has worked and the the other thing though is like Rachel yeah. says in LA 50% of the people are vaccinated it's nowhere nowhere near that here in Ireland we've been one of the slowest in Europe mm-hmm. again for reasons not entirely certain so um uh, but you know, yeah. is, you know, the end is the end. Seems it, to it be. makes
0: you, as, you, as you're speaking. It it makes me it makes me wonder how the um, the Rob in Threshold would have responded to this situation. Um, and I, and I say kind of the Rob in Threshold because, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, I, I kind of have form in this. I, I've been upbraided by uh, quite rightly by another writer um, for during an interview um, referring to. Him as you, as the, the the narrator of his book, as you, because the narrator had the same name as him and was in many ways very um, very similar to him, and yet it was he. It was pointed out to me again, as I say quite rightly, that that was not necessarily a connection that should be made. So I just wanted just establishing the kind of um, parameters of this interview going forward if i was to refer to the rob in threshold as you is that something i would be upbraided for or is that um, no
1: i am totally fine with home. that you know and in fact i've okay. done <laughs> the the opposite to interviewers where they were being you know quite polite and so on about that and saying the the the, the 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 character rob the narrator rob and i kind of felt a bit bad for them and thought god i've got to uh make this less awkward and i said look come on let's you know, for all intents and purposes, this is me, which is not to say that everything that happens in the book really did happen to me. You know, that's not the, the issue. Mm-hmm. But but it is, um, the, the narrator of Threshold is very much a, a kind of persona, a somewhat hyperbolized, but not even that hyperbolized persona of myself. So, I mean, to me, it's both like a character on a page. I mean, it, it, it suits me a lot of the time to talk about it as the narrator, just to have that bit of distance on it. But I don't mind if people uh-huh. um, conflate. You know, it's it's kind of asking for it, really. You know, if people conflate me with the narrator, I can't really blame mm-hmm. them. I only have myself to blame. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, have, you, have you found? Oh, yeah. Could I Threshold. say something
2: about that just really quickly? I just of want course. to say it. Threshold is one of my favorite recent novels. And um, that narrator is not at all sanctimonious about fiction, And Mm -hmm. it requires somebody who themselves is not sanctimonious about fiction to create a voice like that. So if Rob Mm -hmm. were suddenly um, sort of a kind of, you know, um, ideologically promoting uh, the purity of fiction in terms of how his narrator is referred to, it would be hard for me to believe that, Uh if you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I
2: yeah, no, didn't that makes, mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to add no, that.
1: Thank, thank you, Rachel. That, that's lovely. And uh, and that's a, that's a fair way to, to put it. Just one more thing I would say to that is there is sure. a kind of traditional hierarchy of genre, you know, that a lot of people do believe in with kind of fiction up at the top and everything else on it kind of descending layers below it. And I've never really written like that you know, I don't even read like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, just the kind of genre promiscuity is just something I've always been comfortable with, you know, a kind of a, a non, non-binary non kind of genre, so to speak.
0: It's interesting, that kind of hierarchy you talk about, because I kind of had the feeling that that might have flipped in the last few years. Like there seems to, what, what is often sort of banded together as kind of auto fiction seems to have been kind of elevated to uh, a sort of a a position in sort of the critical position in novel writing that seems to currently at least sit above the kind of novels of so-called pure invention. I don't know if that's just my sort of interpretation of it or is that something? Yeah, there's
1: there's certainly a lot of it around, isn't there? You know, the horrible thing is um, when, you know, I find myself writing a book like that And then finding that, God, everyone is at it, you know, you feel, you feel a little bit less special and a bit less original, but it's something I've just been interested for the longest time, which is autobiographical writing Mm -hmm. and particularly autobiographical writing, which, um, is, which utilizes all of the kind of means and methods we have at our deployment by true fiction, you know, um, it doesn't ultimately matter whether something is true or not. You know, it's just what what, what is it on the page? Is it alive? <laughs> that Friday evening back in Paris, I walked to a bar in the 11th arrondissement and watched the rain hammering down on the street outside. I ordered a bottle of red wine and stayed there until I had finished Michael Surya's definitive Georges Bataille, An Intellectual Biography, which I had been reading all week. It was after one o'clock as I walked home along the Rue de Belleville, deserted now with the rain still falling hard. I was drenched, but I didn't care. Two black guys approached me. I tried to walk between them and found that one of them had clasped my wrist firmly. I looked at him. Our eyes met. I pulled my arm away, but he held me tight. Then his friend was holding up a large serrated knife that shone in the streetlight. He too looked me in the eye. I had sent the proofs of my new book off to my publishers that afternoon, and now, with all the wine inside me, I reflected that I had achieved and enjoyed a few things in life, and worse could happen than to die here, picturesquely on a Paris street in the rainy night, to a gleaming knife. And then this passivity became active desire, a sudden bright wish to die. Unexpectedly, the guy let go of my arm. I walked off. They turned and cursed at me. I cursed back. I considered going after them and roaring in their faces, kicking and punching wildly. I lost my way in the rain enthralled by visions of beating a man to his death, any man or any woman, not to cause pain but for the release of it, pummeling a face with my fists till it caved in, stomping a skull against the rained on concrete. I was still raging when I got home, a euphoric, self-fueling rage that craved eruption. That night I dreamt my own death. I knew that I was dying, the process was quick, but as I died, I became suffused with joy because I knew that this death of myself, my individuality, this bungled figment that called itself Rob and staggered through its world was of no consequence, a mere transformation, the end of an illusion of separateness. A veil had been lifted and there was no boundary between me and all else. To have lived once was to live forever, merged with all that is and an infinite journey where individuality is no more substantial than the patterns thrown up on the foam of the sea. I slept a good nine or ten hours, and when I awoke, it was a sunny, late morning. I lay there feeling light, cheerful. A conversation in Spanish drifted up from the courtyard outside my open window. I remembered the dream, the brilliance of it. The ping of an incoming email sounded from my phone. Soon it was back, the anxiety the plans, the craving to distinguish, preserve and disseminate myself. But the cheerfulness remained, the levity, and with it a lingering thought or hope or fate, which faded into the background ambience as the day progressed, that the dream had been the reality and that this lonely, curious existence was the dream.
0: Is this, uh, Rachel, is this a concern for an essay writer? Like, do you... Um... Do you feel, is there a certain sort of obligation you feel to, to truth and persona and sort of um, fact when you're writing an essay compared to when you're composing your novels? It's just I put in mind a little bit of um, when I interviewed the essayist John DeGatta and was quite struck by his sort of, um, it would be, it's very reductive to say kind of flexibility with the fact, but he talks about one particular moment and very famously he had that sort of, book a lifespan of a fact where it's him in conversation with his fact checker but like there's one moment where he describes a I think it's a a, a truck belonging to an animal um, rescue company or something like that as purple and the fact checker came back and said no it's actually I checked this is pink we should probably change it and, and John is like no but you know the there's something about the purpleness of it which is more truthful to the essay that I'm writing um, as so I'm curious Rachel do you That's feel a sort of an obligation to hard objective fact or so-called objective fact when you're writing your essays or is there a kind of personality of Rachel Kushner which you sort of put forward in the essays?
2: Well the way that you just posed that question suggested that you're either um, you either forge a kind of path with fidelity to objective fact or you're true to yourself um, but I think Maybe there's a way of doing both when you're writing essays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I'm primarily and s- fundamentally a fiction writer, um, the essay for me is a distinctly separate place. And mm-hmm. some of the essays in, in this book, The Hard Crowd, um, were written like. For instance, for the New York Times Magazine, where it's a sort of serious endeavor of reported nonfiction where mm-hmm. there's going to be um, a month of a team of fact checkers looking things over. And if you are intervening in something that is a sort of loaded topic, like, for instance, Palestine, they want to be able to absolutely defend mm-hmm. you and your peace and being super precise becomes crucial. Mm-hmm. Um some of the pieces in the book are are less like that, but that doesn't mean that um, I use purple because it has a sort of figurative possibility to it when really something was pink. I mean, I don't really Mm -hmm. even know what the difference between those two colors is, but but I don't really think in that way. Um, I think that I am interested in like, the objective world, how it looks, the mechanics of it, how it makes me feel, mm-hmm. how I orient myself, um, like among various people and things I remember, and people, you know, cultures that I encounter. And if if I were more interested um, in inventing or embroidering on top of what I encounter, I probably would put that in fiction instead. In terms of the fact checking. Um, there's a the title essay of my book, The Hard Crowd, was um, excerpted in the New Yorker almost whole cloth. Uh, there's a longer version in the book, but the version in the New Yorker is basically the essay, and it's full of remembrances from my very deep past about a San Francisco where I grew up that is basically vanished. And when um, oh, I mentioned to my husband that it was being fact checked, he thought they're going to fact check that essay. How ridiculous, because maybe along the lines of whatever John DeGado was saying to you, um, it kind of floats in a luminous bubble of my own memories, so that it is a Mm -hmm. sort of subjective gesture. And yet they did fact check every single detail. And I make just very brief mention, without even naming the person, of a friend who worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken in the Tenderloin Mm -hmm. when we were 15 they called that person. You know, did you work 40 years ago uh, at a Kentucky Fried Chicken in the Tenderloin? Yes, I did. Um, they called another friend of mine at 6 a.m. because we live on the West Coast and they were calling from New York City. Were you at an agnostic front show in 1991 at the Sixth Street Rendezvous? Um, I think so. Uh, was there a fist fight? I think so? Was there beer on the floor? <laughs> like the kind of level of fact checking was very funny in a way. Um There were people that I had given the essay to first who are in it, like the tattoo artist Freddie Corbin, because some mm-hmm. of what I mentioned about his life is tragic and personal, and I wanted his mm-hmm. blessing before I published the essay. And he didn't really seem that concerned with the minutia and gave me a really cool, beautiful response, which was just, we're both artists and we're both interested in the truth. And I respect what you've done here. In other words, if this is the way you remember things, I trust you enough to just go Mm -hmm. ahead and publish this. But then when the New Yorker called him and said, you know, did you have diamonds in your teeth in the 90s when Rachel lived with you? He said, well, I had one diamond in my tooth. Mm -hmm. And then there was a big back and forth over how to reconfigure the sentence so that it was singular (laughs) rather than plural diamond. It was a very strange process going through that with them, but it was okay also. Um, I would Mm -hmm. say just to close out about memory, there is a certain responsibility when you start describing worlds that were shared with other people and are Mm -hmm. no longer existent, like I describe um, a poster that was in the Greyhound station and it was a silhouette of a teen and said, runaways, call for help. I remember it vividly and yet it's the kind of thing I would remember and I don't know if it existed or not, but people um, wrote me and said, I remember that poster too. And I Mm -hmm. thought, maybe I've inserted that memory um, into your mind because the one who (laughs) gets to tell... Is the one in a way who is shaping the record?
0: Mm. That that's really interesting, actually, because it makes me think. Like just describing the the process of fact checking, I think. Firstly, and I don't I don't know how it is in Ireland, Rob, but I think to somebody who is more familiar with the way articles are written and published in Britain, I've often been quite impressed and quite struck by how the the rigor with which uh, American publications fact check. Um, uh, articles. I, I I remember Zadie Smith talking about. I think it was an article she wrote about Jay Z, and being quite quite struck by just the level of which the the fact checkers worked. But it also makes me wonder, and this sort of bring us onto a um a, another subject I'd like to discuss, but which connects to your your closing point there, Rachel, about like who kind of gets to tell the story, is that in a way when you were describing that fact checking process, it feels like a sort of a process designed for one type of article, perhaps the type of article about sort of, I don't know, uh, certain sort of maybe politicians or business people or people who occupy a certain place in society. And then when you try and apply it to, for example, was there beer on the floor on this particular night, it just, it it takes on a certain um, absurdity.
2: That's
1: right. Um, Yeah. Because it's overly literal. yeah.
0: Yeah overly literal and also just sort of it does it, it seems to kind of apply to sort of a perhaps yeah a sort of a class or a strata in society that sort of um yeah is not sort of is not normally sort of subjected to this kind of level of interest from uh, right
2: like calling my friend who lives in Jeannie hicks who lives in bakersfield now and asking her if she worked at kentucky fried chicken 40 years ago
0: mm-hmm yeah 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 and that's one thing I find in both both threshold and in the hard crowd is this sort of um this sense of uh i think class consciousness might be a bit of a sort of a, a high flown um sort of way to to express it, but I think there's definitely compared to a lot of um a lot of writing which I think is sort of very much rooted in the sort of solidly middle-class experience and by I'm conscious that we have a slightly different way of expressing middle-class between Britain and the States like I think sort of like basically like sort of quite wealthy or very wealthy experience whereas I found in, in, bo- in both of your work this is kind of um, sort of working-class consciousness and kind of a, there seems to be a sort of a desire to to give that voice and to give that representation.
1: Yeah I think actually that's one of the things I really relished about reading Rachel's book in the hard crowd was that it's a book of essays and most of the books of essays I, I read tend to represent and be about, um, certain strata of society. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It depends on the book, but in this I was reading about kind of bikers and guys who drank at, you know, dive bars in San Francisco and the Tenderloin people who went to clash gigs and, uh, you know, listened to PJ Harvey and stuff. So I just appreciated that that was a world I could, um, relate to and navigate somehow and that that it it wasn't what I was used to seeing in a kind of serious collection of essays. Um, But likewise, um, yeah, it's the same when I, when I write, you know, uh, it's not really a conscious choice, you know, I have maybe reasonably or relatively kind of high, high-minded interests in some, in some sense, you know, I'm interested in philosophy and in literature and in art and so on. But also I come from a culture, an Irish working class culture of, um, you know, with more self-destructive aspects and with a, a keen interest in the kind of narcotic life and in the kind of alcohol fueled side of life. And, you know, uh, Th- th- those, th- I, I try to write, or I just, maybe I just do naturally write in a way where I don't have to keep my kind of Heidegger separate from my nightclubs or, you know, my, 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 uh, my French, um, existentialist 20th century philosophical interests, separate from, um, descriptions of, uh, just the kind of people that populate my life, frankly, you know, and, um, uh, just like, th- even though Threshold is maybe, you know, 90% um, lived experience um, rather than fiction, uh, it's nonetheless populated by characters who are um, c- kind of some of them are based on real people and some of them are just imaginary representatives of the kind of people who, like I say, inhabit my life. And uh, yeah, and that's just how it mm-hmm. comes out. Yeah.
0: And I think there's something kind of refreshing as well about the sort of um, the sort of avowedly kind of, uh, as you said, like a working class voice, but like not necessarily sort of caring at all about ticking the boxes that publishing often requires the working class writer to do. So, you know, to to spend your time talking about how. How dreary life was on the sink housing estate, or or anything like that. It's sort of like it's almost like okay, um, certain types of writers will be admitted into uh, into in, into the like literary world as long as they kind of stick to the kind of the the box that's been prescribed for them. And one thing I, f- I find is sort of in, uh, in in both Threshold and the Hard Crowd actually is this kind of. Uh, Sort of the, the the pushing of the kind of the, the the transgression of these limits, actually, like refusing to be pigeonholed into sort of one type of writer or one type of person.
1: Yeah, I I, so, I really am glad you said that. It's just uh, that one of the things I've always people have asked me about it, class and working class and so on. It's I kind of have coming from a purely working class background. I have a kind of pride in it but also the sense that it's not something that interests me or not something I want to uh, mm-hmm. kind of think about or talk about much. And um, even the kind of models, the writers who I've always admired from a working class background are kind of the ones who lost interest in it pretty quickly and moved on to something else. You know, getting lost in any kind mm-hmm. of identity, I think, can just be such a, a drag. mm
0: mm-hmm. Rachel you're going yeah.
2: to Yeah, this is um interesting conversation. Um I love what you know, um what Rob said about um not having to uh silo off or separate his Heidegger from his nightclubs and um I think it's part of what draws me to his work and his interests and it reminded me that um my husband also comes from as Rob just said a purely working class background and uh-huh. um when uh, I got together with him, I said that I was marrying a Hegelian who drinks Budweiser in the shower. Um, he doesn't actually drink anymore, but um it's not having to present one coherent, basically fiction of self, you know, if you've hmm. left those roots behind which my husband did and, um, you know, he has a PhD is the first person in his family to even go to college. Um, he also quickly lost interest. And I think that through living with him, I've become more sensitive to when people are kind of performing um, something to do with their background and when mm-hmm. They're allowing the natural contradictions that arise in the course of life for somebody who's not interested in streamlining and kind of ironing them out. Like that's more interesting to me. In terms of my own background, um, my parents are educated. They both have PhDs, which is such a fundamental difference to Mm. how you're raised and what you see yourself as able to do. So, you know, there's something kind of, in a way, uncool about having parents who were fully on board with the idea that I could be a writer. Like, that's been a possibility for me since I was quite young. Um, At the same time, this essay collection, for me, in a way, I think, allowed me to take stock of why I'm interested in what I'm interested in and write the way that I do. And my parents were very unconventional. They lived in a bus. They never got married. Um, they were involved in this kind of like, they always said they were too young to be beatniks and too old to be hippies. And were Mm. sort of in between and lived in a way that included a cast of characters, people whose art was very much lived without traces in the present. Mm. And I think that I drew lessons from that. And the kind of things that I read and that they read, writers like Nelson Algren and John Steinbeck, kind of depicted an old weird America where you write toward and about people who are most brightly alive. Um mm. and and so I just can't help it. That's what I'm from. You know, I have the kind of mother who, when Sonny Barger um, the leader of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels came out with an autobiography. My mother waited in line for hours to get him to sign a book for me. Oh, my daughter wants to become a writer. You know, so if that's what you grow up with, in a way, which is not to say that I have a kind of outsized fidelity to my own roots or my background, it is nonetheless there and it has allowed me to kind of. Activate what I'm interested in in a way where, like, I have permission to do it. And then looking back, I took stock in this book and these more memoir uh, type essays on on what that is for me. Mm-hmm. In terms of novels, I'm not going. Oh, now I want to shed light on the underclass of America or something. I just go toward what I think is interesting, and um, and and. And serious subject matter, you know, and just what's around me.
0: Mm-hmm. And one uh, one of the kind of um, things that does seem to be sort of a fascination for you. There's just a couple of essays which to deal with this. Is the the concept of sort of of, of engines, of vehicles, of sort of um, of sort of mechanics um, anyway? So we have the 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 first essay, girl on the motorcycle, obviously about the the race you participated in. There's an essay about your your fascination for. Um, Uh, classic cars there's um the uh the company of truckers as well which sort of is okay that's it's very much about the people who uh who who drive these these machines but the machines are very sort of present in in that and and in a way it seems sort of that seems very striking and very unusual uh for a writer like i think there could be a kind of uh you know, people could have perhaps a conceptual fascination with them. I mean, there is a moment where you uh, you mentioned the futurists, and you actually asked, you know, why did these guys never build anything? Um, because your your fascination seems to be really with the, I guess, the, the physicality of uh, of these machines.
2: Yeah, but also people who know how to make things, and maybe that mm-hmm. has something to do with seeing people act rather than. Tell, tell I, I, I don't know. Seeing people act rather than depicting them as char- characters with an interiority to which we automatically have access. I don't know mm-hmm. how to account for it. I have always been interested in cars and motorcycles and the kind of the culture that goes with it. I think it's just something to do with my childhood, like. um I was always interested in the drag strip. I wanted to go to the racetrack. I want to walk through the open pits and see what people are doing. Maybe I'm kind of essentializing gender in a way, because it does have to do with men for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I also saw myself among them. So it wasn't like I thought, oh, this is a realm that is for men. Like not yeah. at all. As soon as I had the money, you know, to buy my own motorcycle as a young person, I did. Um, just as a kind of interesting aside, that my essay collection in French is going to be called, um, forgive my accent, I don't speak French. It's going to be called uh, Les Routiers sont Sympas, like the truckers oh, okay. are kind. Which, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it was uh, the name of a radio show in France in the okay. 1970s where I guess they just interviewed truckers and um my husband told me about it because they were trying to figure out how to translate the hard crowd and there wasn't really a good obvious transposition that would do justice to how that works in English and um I asked Edouard Louis because he I admire Mm -hmm. him so much what how that sounded to him in French and he said um it sounds like a stale lavender sachet in the back of my grandmother's drawer and I thought (laughs) that's kind of okay with me um just because I think I, you know, I'm sort of like a, the one lifting up this sort of forgotten item in the thrift store more than he is. And we're different generations. But um, so it, anyway, the truckers are kind. Yeah. And my, my yes. husband's father was a trucker. So I feel it all kind of comes full circle.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Um, one thing I mean, you talk about uh, admiring Edouard Louis. One th- one of the great pleasures for me as a, as a reader uh, is discovering the writers that uh, writers I admire admire, and that's one of the great joys of both of these books. Is the kind of the the presence of um, of other writers in them, and I mean, Rob, in, in Threshold, you kind of go on uh, several pilgrimages. Actually, I mean, to um, there's the the Parisian pilgrimage for. Um, uh choran, there's uh the Spanish pilgrimage for um for Bolaño. Um and there's something uh I, I find kind of very admirable about wearing these kind of these influences on, on, on your sleeve and kind of uh engaging with them uh directly rather than sort of maybe uh just kind of alluding to them or or, or perhaps even trying to sort of uh, disguise the the influence that they've had on you. Mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that sort of that desire to kind of to, to name I guess
1: yeah um I mean it's kind of you could say it's it's um it's not the done thing it's not the cool thing in a way because you're wearing yeah you're wearing your influences on your sleeve like your heart and you're um making these kind of pilgrimages trips but it's not entirely it's not at all without self-interest because um while I was writing this book and, you know, I had this concept of what it was, which was this kind of, I don't know, kind of cubist auto portrait or something um, that was largely about traveling and about literature, but it was, a lot of it was about me trying to kind of come to terms with myself during a period of frankly crisis, um, a lot of it. And so you kind of know when you're in that mind state, you know, that, Taking a trip to um, Blanes uh, and figuring out stuff about Roberto Bolaño, who I admire to to the ends of the earth, um, you you kind of know that a story is going to come of it. You know, I remember Martin Amis saying somewhere before that every journey has the kind of formal shape of a short story, and he's so right. Uh, there's very few trips that, if you're if you've got your pen ready, you know, if your eyes are open, that you can't kind of turn into some sort of narrative whether it's a written narrative or just a good anecdote down the pub. So uh, there was an element of, you know, that's enough about Roberto Bolaño. Now back to me, you know, where you're kind of using these voyages into mm-hmm. the work and the mind and the life of another author uh, as a kind of way to tunnel further into yourself and kind of make a reckoning with your own obsessions and um, uh your own past, your own life, your own present. Although that said, the one, um, the one encounter with a writer in this one that was absolutely urgent in a different way was with Ian Choran, um, the, the pessimistic Mm -hmm. kind of nihilist comedian aphorist who, um, it was absolutely true that as I describe in the book for a certain period of my life I was so fixated on his work that everything pretty much everything else I read just tasted anodyne and long-winded and um so and I really wanted to kind of write him out of my system I wanted to write a book about him and I made copious notes for it and then I was kind of that wasn't really working out so I was embarking on some kind of ill-conceived historical novel that was going to be somehow partly about him or something and anyway i took a trip to paris i was living in dublin at the time and i took a trip to paris to um research his life in paris at the height really of my obsession with him and it was an obsession um not entirely a a healthy obsession because he's not a healthy writer he's he was a kind of writer who confronted me in a very visceral way with my own kind of worst instincts my instincts towards Defeat, um, desolation, you know, rejection, misanthropy, nihilism—all of that stuff. So, shortly after the Charlie Hebdo uh, terror attacks in Paris in the winter of mm-hmm. the early year, uh, January, I guess of 2015, I went over there and did all of this research and so on. But then, I kind of abandoned the idea of writing a book about him and writing about this trip. Um, where I made some sort of reckoning with my obsession with him became the work itself. Mm -hmm. And then um, true enough, I kind of freed myself from it having written that chapter. And by that stage, I knew very much, it wasn't just a standalone piece. It was part of a a book that was forming in my mind. Uh, it, It kind of took away the full ferocity of my addiction to him. And I could kind of, uh, but and i could kind of move on and read read again but it also gave me um it also just put this idea in my head of using writers pretty much colossal writers um really as a way of tunneling further into myself and uh my own um my own interests my own philosophical hang-ups my own pathologies mm. and so on you, there's another chapter about mm. George Bataille, um, which lent itself very well to c- comedy because, you know, this is a this is a pretty <laughs> significant figure in contemporary uh, European thought. Who also once masturbated over his mother's corpse. You know, this is is kind of somewhere between a, a grotesque horror mm-hmm. movie character and a philosopher. So uh, th- that lent itself to a kind of to a uh, grotesque to slapstick uh... ch- chapter.
0: To quote Rachel actually, Bataille is something of a sick puppy. As a, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think you refer to him in your Marguerite duress <laughs> Oh yeah. I yeah, I mean that's
2: that. a particular Bataille, Um that's a particular moment in Bataille's history that I'm referring to when he called um, the bombing of Hiroshima a vanishing splendor.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Rob, you probably know
2: mm-hmm. more. You in fact I know you know a lot more about Bataille than I do. I find him to be actually one of the funniest writers of all time. There's
1: mm-hmm.
2: some Bataille, especially Bataille on, um, on um, like Crom- Cro-Magnon and um, the caves and um, oh, even yeah. like human buttocks and what they're for to be some of the funniest writing I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um But what I, yeah, what I say is that he's, that DeRoss herself is not such a sick puppy as Bataille. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in their friendship. Um, And it's kind of been hoping that I would at some point encounter the illuminating detail between them. Because what I have is a detail that doesn't, that doesn't um, tell me much, but seems evocative, which is that um, she gave her. Uh, windfall proceeds for having written the screenplay for hiroshima monomore to batai and i don't know why um oh. they were friends and she's written a couple different essays about him
0: it's such a such an intriguing detail when i when i read yeah. that in your essay like it just sort of it poses so many questions
1: i'd forgotten that well, uh, in
2: the oh sorry
1: no, yeah, I'd forgotten that detail in the essay. And, I, uh, and I've and re- i read the big, chunky biography of Georges Bataille. And I have to say, I have no memory of Marguerite Duras even appearing in it. Maybe she did, but I've lost the memory. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can't help you. I can't illuminate when, that um, one.
0: <laughs> what if the, um, I mean, uh, in the hard crowd, Rachel, you have um, s- several essays about like a lot, of, a lot of, Uh, writers at duress, as we mentioned. There's um, Dennis Johnson, there's Cormac McCarthy. Uh, Not just writers, of course, you talk about artists, musicians as well. I was particularly, I I don't think we're going into too much detail because I don't want to ruin it for people that are going to read it, but P.J. Harvey's role as somebody who grew up in Britain in the 90s, for for whom P.J. Harvey was... Sort of everything. It was so. It was so nice to sort of to to discover this particular detail, um, her significance in your life. But the writer I wanted to to talk with you about was a writer I was not familiar with at all, which was uh, nonni Ballestrini, um, and particularly um, a, a an observation you make about that he and I'm I'm going to paraphrase you here, but he he helped you understand that you could be kind of you could write something which was kind of vital without necessarily being cynical, like you didn't have to have a sort of a misanthropic view of the world, like someone like Céline, who you cite, right. uh, in order to to, to to sort of write something that, that was alive.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, sometimes you work these things out in the essay in a way that suddenly become, I guess, more explicit or stark than these I- notions might have been in my own mind in terms of... Mm-hmm. Um, how Nani led by example or shaped or changed my own attitude toward what literature could be written. But certainly when I, the first book of his I encountered was uh, The Unseen, Ye Invisibly. And that's kind of the, like the debris and fallout and cost of the movement of 77. When um, at first it's very exciting for the narrator of that book. Um, I guess it's, basically the life of this real person, Sergio Bianchi, who was friends with Nani. And, um, he talks about his background and getting involved in the movement of 77 and the kind of fun and freewheeling nature of things. And, um, and then getting involved in a, like, more underground stream of it and then becoming a fugitive. And, um, The loneliness of the fugitive life in Italy really struck me. And then at the end of that book, uh, they're all incarcerated. And the battle for a revolutionary horizon is so radically curtailed. It's a battle on a tier in a prison where all you're winning is this tiny skirmish between you and the prison guards And then they're all holding sheets that are burning out the window at the end. And it's actually one of the most shattering images in fiction that I've ever read. And um, like, you'd have to be a serial killer not to cry at the end Mm -hmm. of The Invisible, but The Unseen. But talking to Nani, I got to be friends with him after I wrote The Flamethrowers. He got in touch with me. And, you know, I'm mining milieu that he lived through, and then talking to him about it, what I grasped from him is that he's not nostalgic. He doesn't mm. look back, even as he knows that he lived through and tarried with a significant historical epoch. And yet he's interested in the future um, mm. and you know what's happening now. And I think that looking at other writers who I've found to be um, compelling stylists, most of them are reactionary writers, um, mm-hmm. like Celine, for instance, or Bernanos is kind of a tradition in French literature, I guess. I don't know. I feel like Rob is more literary than I am, so he can, you know, correct me if I um, make a kind of sloppy gener- generalization. But Nani, for me, has the kind of tang of these mm-hmm. more uh, wry and sardonic stylists. And yet in uncovering what his own principles are to art making, it was without foregoing um some kind of project of, well, to put it in Adorno's words, redemption.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. It's 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 one of those um discoveries, as I said, like this sort of immediately uh what what's, what what we've had to order in the book, even in Shakespeare and Company, we didn't have noni Bellastrini in stock. So it's sort of, it's one of those things. It's like it's re- reading you writing about him made me sort of uh, yeah, inspired to read him uh, yeah. immediately.
2: We won everything. Is like it is one of the great novels in my mm-hmm. opinion, and there's nothing like it, and it's so incredibly funny.
0: Mm-hmm. We're um, we're almost out of time, but there's one thing that I did want to ask. Uh, sort of, a, I guess, a sense that I found. Uh, in, in in both of um, your books about the sort of, I guess, my question was kind of the writer's commitment to sort of being a part of life, like being involved in uh, the things uh, you write about. Because there was a sense um, I got from from Threshold that sort of like, uh, there were a few moments where you said sort of like, oh, I, you know, you talk about a, a certain drugs that you've sort of, taken to a certain level but sort of didn't quite want to 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 cross the threshold so to speak that you were kind of there was a certain sort of expeditionary instinct but a certain kind of restraint as well a certain sort of pulling back and it was a similar sort of feeling and maybe you know maybe I was a bit in the kind of headspace of reading your two works together and looking to draw parallels but I had the feeling in the the title essay the hard crowd that there's also this 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 questioning going on or, or was certainly going on for you, Rachel, about in that time you were writing about like how much you were going to sort of get involved in the scene and make certain scenes your life, and how much you kind of could do that while also being a writer, if that makes sense.
2: Rob? yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm,
1: I, get, I get awkward. Um, yeah, I, I well, here is the thing. Like, I I, I think you know, li- life just keeps happening to me, and that's that, that's the fact, right? As, as banal and obvious as that sounds, but it does. And for a large um, part, it's it's rather disastrous, frankly. It's a kind of series <laughs> of one crisis after the next, and um, and that's that's. I, I hope that doesn't sound self pitying, but it's not a, a, an exaggeration either. That's just been my experience of being on the planet, you know, being in a human uh, life, and uh, writing from the time when I began to take it seriously and become a writer, you know, in 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 the full sense. uh, It was my way of kind of writing my way out of that um, series of disasters and that calamity, Um, and one of the ways of doing that is by forever being just a little bit outside of your own catastrophe and the catastrophes around you and the life that's around you, uh, because you're, because you're the subject, but you're also the kind of observer. And yeah, I, I agree with you, Adam, that Rachel likewise writes about this very thing, uh, in, in that essay. And, um, so, so it's kind of, It's kind of like um, the writing is its own inherent redemption from all of the bullshit that happens to you because um, giving it form and making it something beyond itself, something public, something shareable, something hopefully with at least a glint of the universal in it or the human in it. Um, you know, that somebody in America can read or somebody in the UK or somebody in France or wherever can read and see something of themselves in it. Um, Even though it's often me kind of getting into the most shameful, the most disastrous parts of my personality, um, somehow turning it into a shareable kind of virtual reality experience called literature redeems the kind of shoddiness of it all the kind of squalid the abject kind of vibe of it all uh yeah so it's my kind of way of writing my way out of the trouble that i myself have caused and then of course you put your books out into the world and they set off whole new trains of consequence and cause and effect and they get you (laughs) in even more trouble and then you have to write (laughs) another book to get out of that
2: (laughs) Can I add a little to that? Is there time? Of course. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, go for it. I absolutely love that answer. Um, and it seems it's particular, I think, to Rob and his work, this idea that the writing redeems the life somehow. Um, but that last thing he said about the uh, the novels themselves, like Threshold, then um, having repercussions that cause a sort of Um, new set of consequences. I'm sorry if this is like a little bit, you know, turning it directly back to me, but it did remind me of the epigraph I chose for my book, which is Clarice Lispector. What others get from me is then reflected back onto me and forms the atmosphere called I. And, um, And I think that what he was referring to in a way could be subsumed under that idea, Mm -hmm. which can take many different forms, but where you, or at least me, one, the writer um, can be sensitive to what they're doing to um, add to or obfuscate or rivet their own image or role, their orientation, the way they look out at the world and draw it in and what they write about. Um, And I was very conscious of um, what it might mean to put my own image on the cover of my book. And that's why I put that epigraph there. It was sort of like throwing up a shield Mm -hmm. to deflect the repercussions of putting this book in the world that's clearly sort of meant to steer the reader towards some idea of who I am. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm a receptive organ who's sensitive to other people's idea of who I am and wanting to both affirm that and also resist it and complicate it, I mm. guess.
0: It's interesting that, um, that yeah, that, that kind of reflexive idea. And it just put me in mind, and I see it on the shelf um, just behind you, the way that kind of experiences have effects and the way those effects are kind of transmuted within us Your, um I, i'm not sure how to refer to it would you the the mayor of leipzig would you refer to that as a novella or i it, it's such a extraordinary peculiar um little book um that i sort of I, I i was going to bring it more into the conversation but have found it since reading it a couple of days ago almost impossible to kind of talk about. Um, So I was just wondering, I I, I wanted to talk about it. So I was wondering I'd hand over to you, Rachel, just to give us a bit of a a sort of a a sense of, a sense of that book.
2: Oh, sure. Um, I guess it's a long, short story that then, so Mm -hmm. these very cool people in New York city called Karma Karma, they're a gallery and they also mostly make um, artist books um, mm-hmm. asked me if I want to do something with them. And I know them. Um, I know some artists who are very supportive of what they do. And um, I then I had written this, basically, it's a short story that they, you know, designed into, I guess, a little book. Um, mm-hmm. And I just felt like it was something outside of the kind of more like corny, straight publishing world, which isn't to say that fiction that's published by corporate publishers has to be corny and straight. It doesn't. But there is something I think about, um, the context within Mm -hmm. which you're writing and the public you're writing for, like karma is the art world, which is a little more infra. Things don't have to be obvious or explained. Mm -hmm. And, um, their designer, uh, was really talented guy. And we went back and forth. I gave them, um, This image from uh, a church in Leipzig. It's the J.S. Bach family crest. Mm -hmm. Um, And they made this silver foil design for the book. And um, yeah, I mean, the story has a detail in it about the author uh, who wrote it, um, named as me, who submitted this story. It was contracted by the Financial Times as they're like, they do one fiction. Um, a year at Christmas time. And they, in the story, the narrator says that this writer named as me was contracted to write the story for the financial times, but told just after she'd written it, that um, it needed to be a family friendly story with no four letter words. And like, don't forget that it's Christmas. These need to be upbeat themes. And um, so that might actually be true. Um, that that was the original context of the story. I don't know. I'll be reading from the mayor of Leipzig, this book that Karma just published. We arrived in Leipzig at dawn to a station full of German police carrying semi-automatic weapons and winos sleeping it off and sad junkies inspecting cigarette butts. We passed the police and the junkies and the slumbering winos and wheeled our suitcases across the street to a hotel for 1970s-era German Democratic Republic functionaries. Birgit asked one of the clerks in her stiff hotel clerk's jacket with huge, cruel shoulder pads, for thick industrial pantyhose, East German deadstock for state hospitality workers, if we could check in early. The clerk, in her state-issue communal hosiery, said no. We left our suitcases and went to meet the museum people for lunch. The restaurant where we ate was downstairs, a glorified basement that allowed patrons to smoke Birgit had surely selected the place for this reason, and it turned out that the three curators and the two museum assistants all smoked as well. They held lit cigarettes and talked about how great the restaurant was for allowing them to smoke. I didn't think it was so great, but I was outnumbered, and they had already begun ridiculing Americans for being neurotic and health-obsessed, which effectively preempted my ability to say anything lest I confirm their fantasy." The head curator of the Leipzig Museum had just been abroad and said everyone in America was obsessed with drinking water. They are constantly guzzling water, people walking down the street carrying huge bottles of water, the size you put on the table for a family, not a single person. And in restaurants, people kept asking me, she said, holding her cigarette vertically like a burning Nazi torch, if I want water. I tell them, do you see I just ordered a beer? Or I say to the waiter, but I'm already having a vodka here. I've got a coffee. Thank you. We have one drink here in Germany. One at a time, I mean, but these American people you eat with in New York, they've each got about five different beverages in front of them. It's completely crazy. Ha, ha, ha. They all laughed and I laughed with them, even as I knew that I too, like those people in New York they made fun of, am obsessed with my water consumption and I worried, as I laughed, that these German curators were dehydrated. But I pretended I was on their side in this and told them about a friend of mine who had recently said to me in a grave and confiding voice, I live in fear that I will be trapped somewhere on the subway or in a taxi in midtown traffic without my water bottle. I quoted the line in my friend's grave tone, and the table erupted in laughter. I had sold my friend down the river. I didn't name her, and it didn't matter, but I was sure that what I'd done was wrong, based on the satisfied effect it produced on these Germans, who sucked and pulled their burning cigarettes shorter and shorter, the ash tips piling longer and longer, the air in this basement restaurant displaced by a suffocating chalk-white haze."
0: I think that's a perfect place to to leave it on. Uh, So the hard crowd is out now. The mayor of Leipzig is out now. Threshold uh, is just released in paperback in the last uh, month or so, I think all available from the uh, Shakespeare company website, of course, Uh, Rachel, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. I do hope we can welcome you to Paris sometime soon for, for a a physical uh, reading in the shop and to, uh, to, to, well, hopefully fend off more catastrophes for you, Rob. Um, And uh, yeah, thank you so much and take care and speak to you soon. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Adam.
0: Thanks, Rob. Thank you. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed today are available in the show notes for this episode, alongside links to our online store and details about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating wherever you listen. It can really help spread the word. Production of this podcast was by David Grove, and the intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman. Available on his album, Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for
1: listening.